I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And children need adults. They need them for guidance, for discipline, for inspiration, and of course, formal education. But often when we talk about education, our attention is almost exclusively focused on those adults. What are they doing right? What are they doing wrong? What are they doing too much or too little of? And how can we stop them? But we too often lose sight of how the children are actually performing. Our guest this week shares how her school has gone about providing so many underserved children the ability to change their stars. Catherine Burblesing is a British education reformer, founder, and headmistress of Michaela Community School. A free school, which for our U.S. listeners is equivalent to a charter, the editor of two volumes on Michaela's methods and teachings, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Teachers, The Michaela Way, and The Power of Culture. In 2017, she was listed as one of the 20 most influential figures in British education, and in 2020 was appointed Commander of the Order of the British Empire in recognition for her services in education, which I must say to American ears sounds like the most epic appointment ever. Catherine, thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. I will lower my veneer of professionalism and admit I am excited very much to have you on the show. I've been following you for the last few years now, and I've enjoyed every interview I've seen you in, but there's a bit of a pattern to these interviews and to a lot of the coverage that you receive in the press. A lot of the headlines are framed around what other people seem to think about your school. Here's some of the the headlines I've read as I was preparing for this talk. Quote, Britain's strictest school, Britain's most notorious school. (laughs) Hell, (laughs) even when it's an article about the school's success, it can't escape editorializing. Quote, Controversial Michaela Free School delights in GCSE success. <laughs> and that's that's from The Guardian, by the way. But in that article by The Guardian is the puzzle piece that seemed to be missing from so many of the interviews I've watched and listened to. Quote, compared with other non-selective state schools, Michaela's results rank among the best in the country. More than half, 54%, of all grades were level seven or above which was more than twice the national average of 22%. Nearly one in five of all grades were nines, compared with 4.5% nationally. And in maths, one in four results were level nine. Now, for American listeners, the SAT equivalent of a nine would be like getting a perfect 800. So imagine one in four students getting an 800 on the math portion of the SAT. So as I prepared for our chat, Catherine, and I read The Power of Culture, which is a collection of essays written by teachers at Michaela and edited by you, I realized that I... I couldn't remember a talk (laughs) that focused exclusively on the school, its methods, its teachers, its results, and its amazing, accomplished, dedicated, brilliant children. So that's why I'd like to talk with you today, because what gets lost in all this coverage about the coverage is the fact that Michaela is fundamentally altering the course of children's destinies. So I would like to start off with a quote by an old colleague of yours from St. Lucia. They are the children and we are the adults. Who is the Michaela school named after and why? Her name was Michaela, and she was just a, a kind of regular old-fashioned teacher. She hadn't read any of the kind of cognitive science that describes how children learn. She just believed in old-fashioned values, that the children were children and that we are the adults and that we should be respected and we should be in a position of authority and that we should have a classroom full of rigor and really high standards and we shouldn't accept children telling us to F off or throwing chairs. And when I say that, I know some people will think, well, that's ridiculous. Of course, we don't accept that. But sadly, it is far too often accepted. And teachers are 
are treated so badly sometimes in schools, in particular in more challenging areas in the inner city and so on. Children are, are given all kinds of excuses. Well, it's not their fault. It's because they come from poverty. It's because they live in an estate or they have a single mother or they're black or whatever the reason is. They can't possibly achieve and be as well behaved as perhaps other children who come from richer backgrounds. And it's just not true. <laughs> you just have to keep your standards high and expect a lot of them. Michaela believed in all of that. Sadly, she died of cancer in 2011. And we named the school after her because, you know, if she were here now, she would be so proud because she believes in everything that we are. Yeah, let's go back about a decade ago to 2010, because as you've mentioned, it's not par for the course for children, especially in lower income areas, to have kind of discipline and calm and quiet oftentimes. But it seems like that was even more the case 10 years ago. So to quote a bit from you, from your written introduction to the power of culture, quote, back in 2010, there was a dominant set of assumptions about how education worked, and it was unacceptable to question them, end quote. So what were some of these assumptions? You've mentioned them, a few of them just now, but why were they making teaching at the time so difficult? Well, I mean, I think those assumptions exist now, still. There has been a bit of a revolution in education in England, but a very small one, and it has given voice to the idea, for instance, that teachers should stand at the front of the class and lead the learning. Now, many of your listeners will think, well, what else does a teacher do? Obviously, they stand at the front of the class and teach. Well, that's what they used to do. I would say in the last 40 years or so, that's not what happens. Children's desks are in groups. And if you don't believe me, go and visit your local school. You will not find the desks in rows facing the teacher. You will find the desks facing each other in grouped circles. And then what happens is the children are facing each other and they do what we call child-centered learning as opposed to teacher-led learning. And when the teacher leads the learning, the teacher is telling the kids lots of stuff and then having a class discussion. You might even do some quick paired work and you get the children to think about what you've taught them. If it's child-centered, then the children are sort of teaching themselves. Now, again, people listening might think, well, that's silly. Obviously, the teacher knows a lot more than the children. So clearly, the teacher needs to lead the learning. I think that what's happened is that People look back to their schools and their own educational experiences and they think to themselves, gosh, it was really boring listening to Mr. Hamilton and he kept going on and on and I don't want my kids to have to go through that and I'm not going to be that kind of teacher. And I get that. You don't want to be boring at the front of the class. However, a traditional lesson doesn't need to be boring. You can teach as well as have a class discussion. It can be really exciting and inspirational. You can have a little bit of pair work and then you bring them back and you say, okay, what's the answer to this? What do you think about that? And so on. Okay, everybody, let's get down and let's do this exercise to practice what we've just learned. It can be really exciting and you need to break it up. You need to chunk it up. It isn't the case that a traditional lesson is just the teacher droning on at the front. I think some people have had bad experiences of traditional lessons. And so they then say, right, well, what we need to do is get them all into groups, which is a little bit more exciting. And the children can then look at each other and inspire each other. And the teacher moves amongst them like a facilitator of learning, keeping the children on task, as opposed to actually teaching them. Now, that happens a lot nowadays, so much so that people are quite shocked when they come to visit us here and see all the desks in rows. And when I say people, I mean teachers, we've got about, you know, outside of COVID times, we have about 600 visitors coming every year to visit our school. 
They're mainly teachers from all over the world, in fact, many American teachers who come here and see what we do, and they take some ideas back to their classrooms and to their schools, and they improve them. So that's really great. But the general culture is one where the teacher must not lead. Now, what's that based in? I would say it's based in all of us, society, feeling very uncomfortable with adults being in a position of authority. Lots of more modern teachers enjoy saying things like, well, my kids teach me as much as I learn from them. And I always think, well, you can't be a really good teacher then. I mean, that's ridiculous. You're 35. You've got a degree and <laughs> experience. How can a 14-year-old be teaching you as much as you teach them? But they like to say that because it makes them feel like everyone's egalitarian and we're all on the same footing. When that just isn't true. We're the teachers and their parents, for instance, also should be in a position of leading the way. And people feel very uncomfortable with the idea of authority. And I think that's because they confuse the idea of authority with authoritarian. So Hitler was authoritarian. And they think, I don't want to be Hitler. Therefore, I can't tell the children off. I can't lead the learning because that means I'm in a position of authority. But being in a position of authority is a good thing. And exerting that authority doesn't mean you're kind of shouting at them and being mean. It just means you're leading the way. And that's what we teachers should do. Yes. Based on my reading of The Power of Culture, I don't think Hitler would be a good fit for Michaela necessarily. But it sounds to me like they're confusing the, the means with the method and the method with the content. Like you were saying, they're recalling their childhood, maybe that terrible teacher they had who just stood at the front of the room and was a real jerk, right? And so now they think, if I ever see that image, if I ever see an adult barking out orders, quote unquote, to the students, then I know that that's bad because that's what I experienced and that's what Michaela must be. But it, it sounds like a fundamental error. They're confusing a memory they had of an entirely different teacher in an entirely different school using an entirely different method with your teachers. Do I have that right? Yeah. They dislike instinctively the idea of authority. They don't like mm. So like you say, well, Hitler doesn't make any sense. Ha ha. Well, I'm telling you, I mean, we get called Nazis all the time by people on Twitter and so yeah. on. And they think that because we have high standards of discipline, we're therefore Nazis. It's mad. <laughs> it is. It is. Especially when, you know, my teachers are arriving at school at seven o'clock in the morning, some even as early as 6.30, working like mad, 12-hour days. You know, why? Because we hate children? Of course not. It's because we love them. Give them the chance, I always say, to change their stars. Because our children are in the inner city to give your listeners some understanding what that means. There was a boy just the other day from a local school who was uh, murdered just around the corner, knifed to death. That happens. One of our kids came out of an exam. I remember once he was stabbed multiple times with a compass by some kids at a local school. Kids arrive here on bikes wearing masks. And when they would wear masks, this wasn't in the day where masks were normal. <laughs> and, right. um, you know, they'd be waiting for some of our boys. You know, we are in the tough inner city here, you know? Yes. And we're changing these kids' lives. And we do so through love and through holding high standards in terms of discipline and expectations. We don't allow the children to indulge in victimhood, in mm. believing that the world is against them, therefore there's no point in trying. They already have enough obstacles in front of them, because they do. They have loads of obstacles in front of them. Some of them don't know their fathers. Their mothers, you know, aren't necessarily there for them either. Some of them don't have someone to make sure that they're up in the morning to get them to school on time, to make sure they have the right equipment for school. They come across all kinds of problems. They have those obstacles already. For us to then put the additional obstacle in front of them, 
to allow them to indulge in victimhood. And when I say that, what I mean is, it's what the kind of well-meaning liberal does. He sort of says, well, I feel bad. You know, this boy, he lives in, a, in, in an apartment with no space. He's got five brothers and sisters. It's really hard for him to do his homework. It's a bit mean of me to expect him to do his homework. So I'm going to let him off. And we don't give him the detention, let's say. The, the teacher doesn't give him the detention for not doing his homework. And then the boy gets used to not doing his homework. And so he never does it. And when he fails his, his SATs and he's leaving high school and that's the end, well, who loses out? Is it the child or is it the teacher? It's not the teacher. The teacher feels better about himself because he thinks, mm -hmm. look, I'm such a nice, compassionate person. I allowed that boy to get off and I never gave him the detention. Look how kind I am. When in fact, the kinder thing would have been to hold that boy to account and give him the detention so that next time he would get the homework done whatever obstacles there were in front of him. Maybe he's got a house full of noisy other brothers and sisters. Maybe he doesn't have anybody who can help him with his homework. But it doesn't matter because you know what? Life is going to throw all kinds of obstacles in front of you. And it's our job as teachers to help these children develop the kind of resilience and the ambition to be able to overcome those obstacles. And that is what we do here. And we do get called Nazis for doing that. <laughs> Yeah, the teacher is abandoning the child's needs to alleviate their own sense of guilt. They're making themselves feel better in the temporary while affecting that child's long-term prospects. You mentioned the liberal label. I want to talk about what small c conservative means in the Michaela School. A bit more from your introductory essay, you said, quote, The thing I am most proud of is filling a school with small c conservative staff, from the caretakers to the office staff to the kitchen staff to the teachers. They all vote for different political parties, of course, but at heart, they believe in tradition and are old school, end quote. So they all vote for different parties. They're all small C conservative. In the context of teaching and specifically teaching at Michaela, what does it mean to be a small C conservative and how do these conservative values manifest themselves in the school and in the lessons? Yeah. So one example, as I just said, is not allowing the children to indulge in victimhood and to say to themselves and to their friends and families, well, look. We couldn't possibly meet those standards because I'm black, I'm poor, I have a single mom, I'm whatever the issue is. They are all treated the same here, and it doesn't matter what your background is. And so you will never hear the children say, that's not fair because little Johnny got away with that yesterday. Never happens, ever. Never, ever hear children saying that's not fair here. And I'm sure people wouldn't believe me if you have teachers who listen because they'll think that's absurd. That happens all the time at my school. I promise you, we never hear those words here because we consistently apply the same message to all of the children. Now, when I say I'm proud of having all these small C conservative staff, I have to say they don't you know, necessarily start out that way. Some of them just come around to that way of thinking for being here, and they see the good that those values do. So one, not allowing the children to indulge in victimhood. The juxtaposed kind of thinking to that is taking personal responsibility. So when the, the well-meaning liberal wants to be kind to the child who d is less privileged than he is, he sort of says, well, he hasn't had as much advantage as me. He isn't rich like me or white like me or tall like me or whatever it is. And so because of that, I feel bad for him. So I'm going to expect less of him. Whereas we say, it's your responsibility to get the homework done. And maybe you have a really hard time at home, but you still have to get that homework done. And yes, maybe you don't have an alarm clock and maybe your mom doesn't wake you up, but you still need to get to school on time. And yes, maybe you have a million obstacles in front of you. It doesn't matter. We're not going to accept them as excuses. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to try and support you. 
That doesn't mean that when you say, oh, I don't have an alarm clock, we're not going to say, okay, you know what? Actually, what we do is we sell alarm clocks here at the school. And then we say, instead of spending your money at the chicken shop after school, why don't we save up? We'll watch you save up your money so you can buy an alarm clock. For instance, we help support them so that they can manage themselves sometimes without the help of their parents, because some of them don't necessarily have that kind of help from their parents, as opposed to throwing our hands up and saying, the boy is a victim, there's nothing he can do, nothing we can do, life is so awful, it's because of racism, it's because of poverty, it's because of the inner city. So we address the issues head on, support them, but we still keep our expectations high and insist that they take, we say it's your responsibility, doesn't matter what obstacles are in front of you, it's your responsibility. So that's one. We also have a sense of duty that we like to inculcate in the children so that when they do anything, they're thinking about other people. So we do appreciations at lunch where the children stand up and talk to a room full of 200 other children and they say, I'd like to give an appreciation to my mom for waking me up this morning. And then we all say on the count, two, one, two, and we clap. And then another child stands up and I'd says, oh, I'd like to thank Mr. Smith for making this great piece of homework for us. It was really fun or whatever. And the point is to get them to be grateful and to get them to recognize that there is a community around them and that they have a duty to give back to that community. So it's not just all about yourself. It's not just all about trying to be that rich guy. It's also about paying back to your community. And I would say that is a small C conservative value as well. The gratitude idea, being grateful for what little you have. Now, you might not have a lot. And there might be people who have much more than you. The thing is, you will always find somebody who's richer than you, who's prettier than you, who's more accomplished than you. And if you spend your whole life feeling resentful about the fact that you don't have as much as the next person, you will always be unhappy. However, if you're grateful for whatever you've got, you are going to be a much happier person. So we actively teach them gratitude. And on a daily basis at lunch, they participate in expressing that gratitude publicly to a couple of hundred other children and all the staff. And it's, it's, it's a really nice atmosphere where they get used to that and they become very positive people as opposed to being feeling negative and resentful. And some people might say, well, why is that small C conservative? Well, the reason why is because a more liberal position might be, well, who are you, Miss principal of a school, you clearly are okay financially. Who are you to tell a kid who's poor that he should feel grateful? That's a bit rude. Yeah, you could see it that way. Or you could be a small C conservative and think to yourself, but that's going to benefit that child because in the end, he's going to be a happier person. He's going to be more ambitious. He's going to be more resilient. And he's going to then be able to achieve the things he wants out of life. All of these are small C conservative values, which, by the way, I don't think are just with people on the, you know, the conservative side. So Republicans for you. In fact, I think the number of Republicans are not small C conservative at all. I mean, I would say Donald Trump, for instance, isn't, isn't conservative. You know, <laughs> definitely not. Wives and various girlfriends and behaves as he does is most certainly not small C conservative. And there are many people... Uh, on the left, I, although I have to say they're fewer and fewer nowadays, but um, there certainly were, you know, 50, 60 years ago, people on the left were very small C conservative. And I think they still exist to some extent in this country where they believe in meritocracy. So we believe in a meritocracy where people should be rewarded for their hard work. And we believe in the idea of working hard. A really interesting story for your audience is you have a charter school chain called KIPP, 
And they have hundreds of schools across America, started up by two Jewish guys uh, 30 years ago. And they've done an incredible job in the inner cities. Lots of black kids go to their schools and have their lives turned around. It's absolutely brilliant, right? Just brilliant what they've done, right? So knowledge is power is one of our mottos. So is Kip, you know? So uh, I love it. One of their other mottos is work hard, be nice. And in fact, the book that these two Jewish guys wrote when they set up Kip, well, a few years after they'd set up, is actually called Work Hard, Be Nice. And the cover, you know, the big letters, Work Hard, Be Nice. And the idea is that any child that goes through the school should at the end be able to do those two things. They should be a nice person and they should be able to work hard. And if they don't do that, then you've kind of failed. And that obviously you want children to fulfill their potential in all kinds of ways. But at the very least, you've managed to do those two things for every child who passes through your care. Now, we thought, brilliant, we definitely want something similar. And so we changed it to work hard, be kind, because we thought, well, we need to be a bit different. So we did. We changed it. But it's the same idea, those two things. What's really sad is since the Black Lives Matter movement last summer, since everything that's happened, KIPP have come under pressure to change their motto, and they have abandoned the motto of work hard, be nice. Now, that is really devastating. And we most certainly will not be changing our motto from work hard, be kind although we aren't under that kind of pressure. So don't blame Kit because you're in America and things in America have gone even more mad than they've gone here. The reason was because it was put to them that when you teach, they're quite happy with the work hard. They're not happy with the be nice. And the reason is because if you teach children to be nice, then you're teaching them to be subservient. You're teaching them to sort of be slaves. And um, when you have a couple of Jewish guys at the top and a whole load of white administrators, and a lot of black kids in your school, it looks bad that you're telling these kids to be nice when in fact what you mean is you want them to serve the white man. That's essentially the the, the thinking behind this. You don't want them to be nice. You want them to be revolutionaries who are going to stand up to the white man. Now, I don't see that at all when it comes to that idea of them being nice. I just want, you know, we say kind. We just want the children to be nice to each other. So when, um, when in our canteen, if a child drops a plate, in other schools all my life, child drops a, place in the, a plate in the canteen, all the other kids start howling like wolves and start banging on the tables and they go, Whoa! that's what they do, right? And you can imagine 500 children going, Whoa! our children, on the other hand, when somebody drops a plate, five or six of them will run to go and help them pick up the cutlery and help pick up the soggy food on the floor, you know, (laughs) and get their hands messy in order to help this child. That's what being kind or being nice is. One of them has forgotten a pen, so somebody lends the pen to the other one. They get up and they thank their mum for cooking them dinner last night. That's nice. The idea that the whole of Kip is now stopped from teaching children to be nice because somehow that's racist is to totally misunderstand our role in positions of authority as adults and what we ought to be trying to do with children. And I think sadly in 2021, we see oppression where there is love and we are undermining these children because children who are never taught to be nice will have less nice lives. That doesn't help anybody. I'm always begging people to listen to me to try and re- see what they're doing to these children. You know, when an organization like KIPP just has my utmost respect, you know, Uncommon Schools, Success Academy in New York. Thomas Sowell has written this great book called Charter Schools and Their Enemies, which everybody must read. It's really short. 
And he looks specifically at the Success Academy in New York. And that school is in the same building as other schools. And yet the results are completely different. I just don't understand why anybody would want to stop wonderful young teachers out there because it tends to be, it's not always, but it tends to be that these charter schools, free schools here, lots of young people, although they're not, not all of them. I'm certainly not young, but, um, (laughs) but they're early in the morning till in the evenings, dedicating all of their time and energy and love to these kids to change their lives. Why wouldn't everyone love that? Yes. I imagine that your Guyanese and Jamaican, if I have that correctly, heritage probably blunts some of the criticism of subservience to, yeah. as you said, the subservience to the white man. But that's true. Isn't that sad? I mean, or, or it is. Yeah. But it's 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 awful when you then think, oh, so are we saying that only a black principal can kind of get away with teaching children how to be nice? Like it's just awful. It's, it just gets everything upside down. Right. I think what what gets confused on the national level is something that is very clear on the individual level. And what I mean by that is, is I, I've got a couple of friends who've both recently had children about a year ago. Kids were born about a week from one another and they're both great parents. But even within that one year period, right, the children are just beginning to talk. You can see the differences in how the children behave to some extent. Obviously, some of it is is inborn, but a lot of it is what their parents, what each set of parents has been passing along. And even, you know, how rigorously the parents have been, you know, training the children or, or teaching them new skills. I've seen, you know, one child excel in one area where the parents have put more work and the other child excel in another area where the parents for her have put in more work. And it, it just seems like such an obvious thing when you're just looking at a child that you're raising or you compare your child to another child. You can be like, oh, OK, wow, oh, that child's very polite and mine isn't very polite. <laughs> and then you ask the parents, OK, why is your why is your kid so polite? And the parent will be like, well, they have to say thank you and please every single day. We, we don't let them get away with it. But it seems like when we talk about schools, when we talk about teachers on a societal or national level, that seemingly basic knowledge about how you have to import knowledge into children rather than a child just being born with that knowledge inherently seems to get lost. You, you speak about a, a culture of gratitude. And Iona Thompson writes about this in her chapter, The Culture of Gratitude at Michaela. She talks about the lunchtime appreciations and how guests to the school have said that it's, quote, an experience that will stay with them for life, end quote. And she describes, I think, sort of like what you did. Gratitude is a habit, as a kind of habit Mm -hmm. that must be taught and repeated by the students again and again and again. And I think many people, and you've spoken to this a bit, believe that gratitude is kind of an organic reaction to something they're naturally grateful for rather than something that has to be habitually learned. Is that something that you've always known? Because I, I think if you spend like five or 10 minutes thinking on it, it can make sense. But I think to the normal person, right, who's just going about their lives, when they hear gratitude, they just think of something like, oh, that's if I get a present, I feel grateful. Or if I get a warm meal at night, gratitude is just something that washes over me. But how did you first come across, I suppose, and then begin instituting gratitude as a habit? Yeah, I think we saw it in another school here. And I think they copied actually uh, some of the charter schools in in the U.S., the idea of kind of standing up and saying what you were grateful for. I mean, it's possible we changed it slightly. The school we saw, they were giving shout outs, what they called shout outs to each other. And we, we just call it gratitude. It's interesting what you said, and I'll just expand so your audience understands the please and thank you thing. When you've got a small child and you're going to give them the chocolate bar and they're just gra- going to grab it and you say, say, please, come on, say, please. And until they say, please, 
you don't give them the chocolate bar. And then when they take the chocolate bar, you say, what do you say? Thank you. And then they say, thank you. And actually, it takes years with a small child. You have to do that role play hundreds of times over years with a small child until eventually they get, it's just part of their psyche where they just say, yes, could I have that please? Oh, thank you very much. Now, when I say please and thank you, when you do, we don't have to think about it. It just comes naturally to us. We don't think about it. And that means we don't have to hold it in our heads. So when you introduced me and you said, you know, thanks for coming on. And I said, thanks for having me. I didn't have to think to myself when you were introducing me, come on, Catherine, remember to thank him. Remember to thank him. I didn't have to keep reminding myself because it was <laughs> me, right? It becomes like breathing. Exactly. Now, those soft skills, because it's a soft skill being polite, demonstrating gratitude, demonstrating kindness, being able to smile at somebody when you first meet them, shake their hand, look at them in the eye. We do a family lunch where all the children sit together and eat every day. I said at the end, they give appreciations. Well, they also sit and we give them a topic for discussion so that they can learn to cut their food at the same time as looking at each other and talking. Now, these are all skills you and I do. We don't even think about it. We just take it for granted. It, these skills are learned. And same with the skill of being able to say, please and thank you and think in a grateful way about one's life. If you don't teach a child to do these things, they just won't do them. And um, then that means that when they go for that job interview, they're having to remind themselves, okay, when I walk in, I have to shake his hand. I need to look at him in the eye. I then need to sit down in the chair and I need to sit up straight. And I know how hard it is for me to sit up straight. And then I need to make sure that I'm looking at him the whole time that he's talking to me. And I also need to remember all the other stuff about the content of the interview while I'm trying to remember all of this. And then I need to remember at the end to say, thanks so much. Uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. And it's too much. Working memory explodes. It can't hold all of that stuff in your head. And so what we're doing is we're undermining children. It is sad because people spend, I see it so often in schools with teachers, that they are giving everything to the children, like their time and their energy. But because they don't necessarily have small c conservative values, they indulge the kids in the wrong kinds of ways, in ways that I think in the end hurt the child. Because the child doesn't come out on the other end feeling personally responsible for his life, feeling like he can overcome any obstacle. Not that the obstacles don't exist, but that he has the resilience to be able to overcome them. Because that hasn't been the aim, because the aim instead can sometimes be to make the teacher feel better about herself so that she feels like she's not a bad person for imposing her privilege on the child and thinking mistakenly that he can achieve the same things that she can achieve. The thing is, he really can. He can. Now, I know people might listen to that and think, what? How can you say that? You know, if you come from the poor side of town, it's much more difficult. I know it's more difficult. I'm not claiming that it isn't more difficult. And neither am I claiming that it's fair. Life is unfair. But what else are you going to do? You're going to wake up at 85 and say, well, I couldn't do anything with my life because look, I was born black or I was born short or I was born... I don't know, not as bright as the next person. Is that what you're going to do? Or are you going to take what you've got? You've got a certain lot in life. You've got to take it and you've got to make the most of it. And that's what school should be about, trying to give children equal opportunity so that they have the opportunity to go for certain jobs, to go for certain university places, to be able to make something of their lives and keep as many doors open as they can for when they leave. That's what we should be doing in school. And too often, because we're too soft, because we give up on kids, 
because we judge them and think, well, look at what color he is. Look at, you know, look how poor he is. Look at his family situation at home. He can't possibly achieve as a result. But the thing is, I have seen children with that same background achieve over and over and over again. And what makes them achieve is the determination of their teachers who insist on them working hard, who insist on them being kind, who do not allow them excuses to get away with poor behavior or poor expectations of themselves. And they just keep on going with those children. That's how you make those kids into a success. Because otherwise, all we're ever going to do is forever complain about the Bezoses of the world and the, you know, the gates of this world who have loads of money. I couldn't care less. Those guys want to earn their money. Fine. Go off and earn them your money. My business is in making my children have the opportunity to make something of their lives. And maybe one of them will become some rich superstar. Some of them will become dentists. Some of them will become revolutionaries. They can do anything they like. But what's important is that I can look at myself in the mirror knowing that I have made sure they've had the best possible education that held them to the highest possible standards so that they could change their stars. Yeah. And I understand why you're as passionate as you are about this because you've seen the results of your methodologies pay out. It's like I said at the top, Michaela students, right, at the quote unquote strictest school in Britain, the controversial school, are outperforming the average British student by three to four times on quote unquote British SATs, right, on the GCSEs. They're outperforming them two to one, three to one, four to one, depending on the subject. And so what frustrates me, Catherine, is if you applied this flawed thinking that you were talking about, how, oh, the, the teacher feels guilty because the student doesn't have the opportunity and so they don't want to force that on them. It's like if you had a good friend, right, and you had access to a car because you came from a well-off family and you were like 15 or 16 years old and your parents were able to teach you how to drive and you had the opportunity to teach your friend how to drive as well. But then all of a sudden you became overcome with guilt because, well, I don't know if he'll ever be able to afford a car one day, so I shouldn't teach him how to drive just in case he's not able to afford a car of his own. It's like, that's not what a friend would do for his or her friend. Just because your friend might not have the opportunity to buy a car in the immediate future doesn't mean (laughs) that lesson on how to drive a car won't ever come into use. This thinking just falls apart when you apply it on a person-to-person basis. But for some reason, when we start abstracting it to education, which really isn't all that abstract, It just starts breaking down. And I feel like people begin absorbing the absolute wrong backwards lessons. You know, actually, that takes us to another concept that I found really enlightening when I was reading it in The Power of Culture. And that is the idea of freedom through constraint. Because Jonathan Porter, who's the deputy head at your school, he speaks about the butterfly of freedom, which is a cartoon by Edward Moncton, shows a bunch of butterflies inside of a box with one escaping, right? And Jonathan uses this cartoon as a way to illustrate our sort of dichotomous narrow view of freedom, right? He says, quote, in the modern world, we are used to thinking that liberty means the absence of external constraint. When Moncton's butterfly breaks out from the box that surrounds him, the butterfly says, you may be safe, but I am free. And so the butterfly, much like the rest of us, is conditioned into thinking that freedom is a state into which we are naturally born. Freedom then is the freedom from an external authority, a box, if you're the butterfly, a murderous tyrant in the case of many 20th century dissidents, end quote. But I think you've been kind of speaking around this topic, but it's all connected, right? That freedom through constraint. And that doesn't seem like a natural thing for people, especially in the West. And I'd just love to hear your thoughts on it because it's clearly paying off for your students. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've got a quote in here on my office I'm just looking at. Real character is formed not by having an abundance of choices but in accepting definite limitations in commitments made and promises kept. 
Now, the quote there is about real character. One could easily say that real freedom is achieved by not having millions of choices, but in accepting limitations around you, which might be there. So I'm not talking about how I'm going to fly to the moon because I'm not going to be able to do that. But given the limitations that I've got, I'm now going to make commitments and make promises and do something with my life. Now, I know that some people will listen to that and think, yes, but that means you're not being a revolutionary and you're not going to change the world. Look, I'm the most revolutionary person out there. I mean, I, I set up a school against all the odds. I had people protesting outside, trying to calling me all sorts of names. I had racist emails. You can't imagine the things that I've been through in order to get the school going. It took us three years to set up against the worst possible opposition. And then I've turned education on its head. So I am a total revolutionary. But the fact is that children do need to be given constraints. <laughs> you know, if you just let children do what they want, well, they'll just sit around on their phones all day. And they'll go on Snapchat and Instagram. If you don't say you better do your homework or you're going to get a detention, well, they won't do their homework. <laughs> Why would they? Now, you might find a few who will. Fine. Well, what? You're going to make sure that those kids are the only ones who succeed? In fact, the ones with less support at home are not going to do the homework. So you are then increasing the divide between the rich and the poor by not increasing those constraints around them. It's an absolute imperative that children need restraint. They need leadership from the teacher at the front of the class, but from their parents. And I mean, it was interesting when you mentioned parents earlier and said, well, it's obvious when it comes to parenting. I'll tell you why you're one friend. Yeah, you have a friend and they're bringing up their child. One person, it may seem obvious. The reason why it doesn't seem so obvious when it comes to a school is people start talking about groups. They talk, start talking about groups of children and they don't want to accept, well, if a group of children has failed, maybe it has to do with poor parenting poor culture in their environment, poor schooling, poor, you know, poor teaching and so on. We don't want to admit that. And so then we want to just blame it on poverty because that's nobody's fault or it's the government's fault and it's always easy to blame the government. That's why we feel uncomfortable doing that. But each of those individual kids, like you said, you have a friend, you know, one might get good at piano and might, another one might get good at chess and it's because their parents supported them and helped them with that. Sometimes parents aren't able to do that. Sometimes they're too busy working. They've got too many other children. They don't actually know much. They don't know the piano or the chess. In their environment, in their culture, people don't tend to teach their children chess. So it never occurred to them to teach their children chess. There's poverty of aspiration. There's poverty of environment that we never speak about. All we ever seem to care about is financial poverty. And while money does make a difference, the most important thing is the, the quality of your parents. Thomas Sowell talks a lot about the quality of his, and his parents actually died. So he was brought up with other adults and aunt and grandmother and things who brought him up. And he said that, you know, the conversation around him was so interesting and exciting when he was growing up that he was able to make himself into something. He grew up in Harlem. He came out of poverty. Now that happens, you know, a hundred times over to kids here. Now, of course, we're a new school. We didn't open till 2014. So Yes, their kids are doing really well. But what I'm not able to say is I've now got 25-year-olds who are doing X, Y, and Z because they're still only 17. You know, they're still quite young. So we've got to wait a few years before I can demonstrate that. But I don't need to. There are so many examples. Kids I used to teach, kids who are at the Success Academy, for instance, in New York. You know, often people don't. I mean, I know in America, they don't like that Stuyvesant is filled with loads of Chinese kids, you know, and they don't like that because it makes them very uncomfortable and they think, well, this isn't diverse enough. But the fact is those Chinese kids have been working really hard and it's not because they're rich. <laughs> it's because they're working really hard. 
we don't give enough of a look in to culture and to what people do around them. And what I just said, if you're part of a culture where children don't really learn to play the piano and they don't learn chess and nobody really reads to the child when they're born and they don't read to them when they're two or three. And when they hear that, oh, it is possible to teach your child to read before they go to school, that everyone's reaction around you is, oh, don't be silly. That's for school to do. Teachers can teach them how to read. And then your child gets to school and doesn't know how to read. And there are children who can read there. And your child sits at the back of the class and thinks, gosh, I'm stupid. All these other kids can read and I can't. And what that child doesn't realize is because you never taught them how to read. Now, I'm not even blaming those parents. I'm just saying that culture matters. That's why our book is called The Power of Culture, because the culture at our school is very much inclined towards trying to push kids with, as you were responding to there, a constrained in an environment that constrains their poor behavior. You know, teachers come here from all over the world and they say, what do you do when a child tells you to F off? Because I can tell you in the inner city, that is commonplace. And we say that doesn't happen here. And they say, what do you mean? What do you do when a child throws a chair across the classroom? And we say that doesn't happen here. They say, but what do you do when a child gets up out of the class and just storms out? And we say that doesn't happen here. They're just amazed. They say, well, how is that possible? Because we kept the fence tight in the first place. If you keep your constraints tight, that crazy stuff doesn't happen. What we always say here is, you know, you look after the pennies and the pounds will take care of themselves. So I don't know if you have the same expression. If you look after the pennies, the dollars will take care of themselves. You look after the small stuff, sweat the small stuff. That's the expression. You sweat the small stuff. You understand that you get upset about a child not giving it a piece of homework. Well, then he doesn't do it again. And he keeps bringing in that homework. And he doesn't carry a knife to school. And I know people then think, what do you mean? Insisting on them doing their homework means they won't carry a knife to school. Yeah, that's true. Because the way in which they rebel with you is by not doing their homework. If the fence is tight, right? then the way in which, so we have uniforms here. We're really smart in our uniform and the kids all wear ties. And at other schools, children will pull their ties down. Like the whole point is you want to have a low hanging tie and you want to have what's called a fat tie where you make it really fat. Like the, the, the knot is really fat and kids do that everywhere. And the schools never say anything. We say something that means all of our ties look beautiful. And that means that if they want to rebel a bit here, they pull the tie down ever so slightly <laughs> so that they don't get caught because we're really good at catching them. And so in a school where there's chaos, well, in order to rebel there, you need to carry a knife. Here, you just need to pull your tie down a bit. So you've got to have these kind of false walls, as it were, that they need to push down. Because look, do I really care about their ties? No. <laughs> but because we make the whole big song and dance of it, or you better have your ties to the top and your shirt's tucked in. Well, then the good kids are doing it and the naughty kids try and get away with it. You know, sometimes somebody, one of the pastoral team will come running into my office and they'll say, Catherine, we've got a situation. And I say, what's happened? What's happened? They say, they're humming in the corridors. <laughs> and then I think, you know what? If that's the worst that they're doing, which is humming in the corridors, I think we're doing all right. It goes to show that it's like you were saying, children are always going to rebel against something, but they're going to rebel where they find the constraints. Yeah. If they have a no talking, absolute silence policy in the library, the rebellion will be the whisper. Exactly. There's a quote in the book by a Kenyan marathon runner. I hope I'm getting his name right. Eliud Kipchoge. It's such a great one. Only the disciplined ones are free in life. If you are not disciplined, you are a slave to your moods. You are a slave to your passions, end quote. 
Just going back to the freedom through constraint thing, because it was really buzzing around my head over the last couple of days as I was reading the book. People don't understand, I think the average person anyway, doesn't understand that opportunity is freedom. The freedom, as you said earlier, to change your stars, right? Like that is a type of freedom that only comes from discipline. There's a quote from a uh, head of year seven, an English teacher, Joseph Butterfield. He was talking about the GCSE scores that we mentioned earlier and reflecting on what that means for the students. And he said, quote, these pupils will have opportunities available to them that simply were not there for their parents. Indeed, perhaps not there for their family and friends at other schools. These results represent social mobility at work. This is what changing lives looks like, end quote. You know, it's hard not to listen uh, to what you're saying about these other schools, and it's hard not to read about other schools and not get really upset and to kind of not have it ruin your day. I almost wonder if <laughs> starting Michaela for you must have been like finding a healthy outlet for all of that anger, because I can imagine you can only watch so many children from impoverished backgrounds be let down and be abandoned, so to speak, by adults that should know better. You can only watch that for so many years before you either have to do something healthy with that anger or something destructive. Because I come from a middle-class background. It's so easy for people who come from that background, who come from an environment which parents are exciting their passions, you know? But if you talk with any one of these people, right? If you talk with any one of my friends, and I have similar stories of my own, where you ask them, oh, how did you become passionate about painting? How did you realize you wanted to become a pilot? How did you decide you wanted to become a screenwriter? And not a single person, Catherine, and I know this is no surprise to you, but not a single person among them, and I have spoken with dozens of people about this, ever say, you know, I was just sitting about and it came to me. No, every single person says, you know, uh, when I was four years old, my father started reading to me and it ignited a, a love of storytelling. Or, you know, when I was in second grade, my teacher had a painting class, and that's when I realized that I wanted to become a painter. Every single passion, even if that kid is preternaturally good at that skill, you know, they find where they belong in life. Someone, an adult, had to introduce it to them first. Mm -hmm. And it, it's bonkers, right? Like, I'm just getting a passion just talking to you about this. I don't know how you stay sane every day. Because when you talk with people, especially from middle class or upper class backgrounds, the recipe is right. They're talking about the recipe, but it seems like they just don't want to share it. And I, I don't get it. That's right. I always talk about people, you know, climbing up the ladder and then pulling it up after them, you know, and stopping kids like mine from climbing it. Look, I get it. People don't understand. And they think that Jason Riley, one of your African-Americans, he wrote a book called Please Stop Helping Us. And then it says something about liberals and, you know, the way the left essentially is hurting the very people they want to help. It's really important to look at outcomes and think, well, is what we're doing helping? <laughs> Because if it isn't, then you need to change it. And of course, I feel very confident. It's funny you say, you don't know how I cope. But the fact is, I'm at Michaela now, and I've been here for seven years. So all I see is huge success around me on a daily basis with kids in the inner city really making something of their lives, the staff feeling fulfilled. It's an absolute privilege and pleasure to work here. But you are right that for the 20 odd years that I worked elsewhere, it was very frustrating. And I used to write a blog called To Miss With Love based on the book and film called To Sir With Love that had Sidney Poitier play a, a teacher. Well, I wrote this blog called To Miss With Love and I, three times a week or so I'd go home and write a story, some terrible story about how a kid had been beaten up or whatever it was. And then eventually Penguin found it and decided they would turn it into a book, which they did. And when I used to write that blog, it was just cathartic. It was a way of me coping because you're absolutely right. 
I would see all these children being let down on a daily basis and just think, what on earth are we doing? And it drove me insane. And in the end, I set up my own school. And so we're now here in the inner city in London and we're doing what we're doing and we're having impact, I hope, not just on the kids here, but on kids all over the world, actually, with the ideas that we're trying to spread as much as we can on how to make life better for these kids. Because what is so upsetting is when you see teachers who love the children, who are killing themselves for the kids, but because they're doing all the wrong things, the kids are not benefiting as much as they should from that kind of love. So that's our kind of aim in life, is to just try and help move the conversation forward so that children all over the world, uh, in particular the disadvantaged, can benefit and be in a position to access that equal opportunity that we also crave. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it is such a shame about what you were talking about with the teachers who are struggling to teach their students because they themselves don't know the most effective methods. And so when they don't see the results that they desire from their children, they get frustrated with themselves. It's like, if you don't yourself know how to swim, how are you going to prevent other people from drowning? Yeah. It's just such a tragedy. We've talked a lot about, you know, politics, liberal this, conservative that. And yes, of course, at the high level, that's all very important. I know that politics played a big part in not only why you started Michaela, but also what kept you from being able to start it for as long as you did. I mean, the death threats that you got, the protests that you got as you were trying to start the school. I could have spent 10 minutes just going through the litany of abuses that you suffered as you were beginning to start Michaela. But why this is also frustrating to me is that I don't think that this should be political. At the end of the day, if they're seeing a child is succeeding, whether it's from a progressive education, quote unquote, or a small C conservative education, I don't understand why adults should care how the child is becoming successful. And one of the reasons that I wanted to talk not only with you, but also with some folks from Montessori School, and I'm in talks with some other schools to talk with them as well, is that I want to talk with successful schools about how they're making children actualized, successful human beings, and they're all doing it differently. But the end result should be the thing that parents care about. And it just boggles my mind and it upsets me that you've gotten so much pushback when in fact you have been so influential, the teachers have been so influential in these children's lives. And it just, it's gotten bogged down by all this politics and it's so upsetting. Yeah, well, the reason is because we're a free school. So we're a charter school. And the charter schools with the Success Academy in New York has had the same kind of abuse and nonsense happen to them. Now, of course, charter schools have been around in the US for 30 years. We've only had them for 10 years. And whenever there's a change like that, people don't like it. Now, free schools are a lot more palatable nowadays than they were 10 years ago. Having said that, all of us free schools here and charter schools in America, they rub the unions up the wrong way. That's the problem with them. The unions don't like them because they break up the system. They're outside. Charter and free schools are outside of the normal system, even though they're still state schools funded by the state. But if the unions were to call a strike, for instance, much more difficult to get everybody marching out on strike. And the unions sort of see education as this fight between the bosses and the working man. And that's, this is how they see things. So there's that, that they don't like. It's also the case that lots of ordinary people, there'll be some lots of teachers, for instance, who are very anti-charter school in America. And they are anti them because they think that it's not fair. And to a certain extent, that's true. So especially in America, where you all have this lottery system, 
they're these lottery balls that go round in this big lottery machine thing, you know, and they turn it round and it rolls, all the balls roll round like a real lottery and it's rumbling. And all these people are standing in a hall and then they call out number 23. And then somewhere in the hall, somebody jumps up with their child going, whoa, we won, we won. And what they mean is they want a place at the school and they're really excited because they got in. And now for every 10 kids that get in, there are 90 kids who don't get in or more than that. I mean, I, you know, it, it's unbelievable, the numbers. And so they're applying. And these are poor families in the inner city, desperate to get their children into a good school. So there's a small number who get in. And that's what's so fascinating about Thomas Sowell's book, which is that he tracks how the kids do who are at the Charter School Success Academy. And he also tracks the kids who applied to success and didn't get in. Because people often say, oh, well, the families who are applying to these charter schools are obviously a different type of family. So he says, fine, let me track the families, the kids who wanted to go, who are the same types, because they also applied and they didn't get in. And they went to the local public school. And there's no comparison. And what is really upsetting for anybody, conservative or left or whatever, it doesn't matter, is that when you think your whole life lies in the balance there in that lottery ball. And if your ball gets pulled out, your number gets pulled out, your life is going to completely be different to what it would be if it doesn't get pulled out. And so you get two children, you know, Jack and John, and Jack ends up in the public school. John ends up at that charter school. John ends up fulfilling all his dreams and doing, you know, whatever he likes with his life. Jack, maybe he gets involved in gang crime. Maybe he drops out of school. Maybe he finishes, but never really fulfills his potential and so on. And had Jack got in, it would have been so different. So people on the left really don't like that unfairness. Jonathan Haidt talks about this in his book, The Righteous Mind, where he tries to explain to liberals why the conservatives think as they do. You know, it's just a different mindset. And he's trying to say, look, conservatives aren't evil. They just value different things to what you value. And he explains that someone on the left, fairness is above all the most important value. And so... That unfairness makes them feel like we've got to stop this. We've got to stop these charter schools from succeeding like this because it's not fair that everyone doesn't get to go to a really good school. In fact, we have a famous politician here on the left who, oh, I don't know, it's now 20 years ago, that he said the problem with a good school, John Prescott, his name was, he said the problem with a good school is that everybody wants to go to it. (laughs) Like, what do you mean that's the problem? That's great that everybody wants to go to it. But what he means is not everybody's going to get in. And if not everybody's going to get in, then we shouldn't allow anyone to get in. That's the thinking. It's not fair. So we need to stop those few from having it. And of course, what I would say is, no, we need to encourage more schools to be like this. Now, it's hard. That, that's the thing. And why is it hard to have those kinds of schools? Because it involves loads of commitment from the staff. It's really hard work for us. But I'd also say it requires certain teaching methods certain insistence on discipline, and a certain lot of small C conservative values, which will put you in good stead. And because all of that can be quite rare, there aren't that many schools who are going to provide it. That scarcity versus abundance mindset, right? What takes me aback when I hear a sentiment like that, not the one that you expressed, but the one that I've forgotten his name already, but the problem with these schools is that everyone's going to want to go to them. John Prescott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The problem with that line of thinking is that there's that kind of famous image of a pie, right? And it's like, oh, you know, how can we serve pie to everyone if we run out of slices of pie? Then there will, there will be people who go hungry, right? Yeah. 
but the oven is right there. Like you can bake more pie. And I've seen this here in America as well. It's like, okay, the problem is, is not everyone is going to be able to get into these charter schools. Or we were having this here with gifted education programs where they're being shut down because not everyone's getting in. And that feels unfair to people. It's like, well, that's one way you could go about it. Or you could bake more pie. You could build more schools. You could have a a thousand Michaela's. You could have a thousand charter schools. Yes. Although where there's an ounce of truth in what they're saying is that it's not so easy. It's not just about baking a pie. It's really hard to be able to run a good school. (laughs) It's really hard to find all these committed teachers who are able to provide a certain type of education. And in particular, because the thinking process that dominates education at the moment is so alternative to what we do, (laughs) you have to find people who are willing to overthrow the dominant way of thinking and go in the opposite direction. And that by very Mm. definition is rare. So it's it's not so easy. So you're kind of stuck. Now, maybe in 200 years we'll get there, but it's (laughs) the case for now that these kinds of schools will be small in number. And the question Mm. is, are you the kind of person who thinks, well, I'd rather some of these kids had access as opposed to no one having access, or would you rather make it so that no one had access and then you kind of go around and complain and say how racist everything is and how you know poor people can't possibly achieve in these ways and so on? I mean, look, I don't have any problem with them protesting about making life fairer. But I do have a problem when they're stopping me from enabling these kids to be able to reach for a different type of destiny. And that's what sadly some of them are doing. Yeah. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. Before we get to the final question that I ask every guest, I just want to squeeze one more in here because I think it's really instructive and it puts us back on the students who I think are, and I think you would agree are the the most important ones, right? Yeah. There's this video that you posted on Twitter back on August 22nd of 2019. Mm -hmm. A student had gotten all nines on her GCSE, which is like a perfect 1600 in an SAT here in the States. I was struck by not only the accomplishment of this young woman, and the dedication, obviously, it took to achieve those scores, but at the encouragement and solidarity displayed by her peers in that video upon hearing the news. They weren't bitter. They weren't jealous of their friend. They were happy to celebrate her achievement. So I just wanted to talk just briefly about how Michaela goes about fostering the sense of community, or to put it in the words of head of year eight, James Sibley, quote, duty to the community before the self. How has Michaela been fostering that? You know, because again, we've talked a bit about Michaela's methods today, which is fantastic, but it seems like so much of what Michaela is doing gets lost in the noise of the wider societal conversation around education. But I just want to take it right back to the students in this second to final question. How have you been able to foster that sense of community among these children where if one of them is successful or more successful than the others, the others aren't embittered, they are happy for their colleague? You know, it's funny because we've never addressed that point head on. What we do is get them to be kind, right? So we get them to work hard and we get them to be kind. And when you manage to achieve that, you just saw in that video, kindness personified. That's all. You just saw the children being really thrilled because they're kind people. They're decent, honest, and caring individuals who love their friend. The environment that they have been in at school makes them feel like a family. Now, in addition to that, The things that we do, we sing hymns together. We sing God Save the Queen, our national song, which is very unusual in this country. Nobody would ever do it. We chant poetry together. There's a real sense of community here. I talk about the Michaela family, for instance, at assemblies. 
So we're all looking after each other. Like I said, if somebody drops a plate, everyone runs to help. It's a very different atmosphere from one that you can find at other schools. You know, sometimes I hear principals say things like, well, bullying is normal. It's what you find in schools. Kids get bullied and that's just the way that it is. Not here at Michaela. Because we're so on top of everything and we create a culture where they're looking after each other, you don't find any bullying. Now, sometimes you might find it online. And that's where we have a really, you know, hard approach with the parents of trying to get them to get their children offline and to stop them being on their smartphones all the time. Because that's where it happens if it does here. And then we have to kind of deal with that situation. But here in the school, never. We don't have bullying incidents. We look after each other. So what you saw there was just what we see every day, all of the time, the kids just being nice to each other. I remember we had a girl here. In the end, her her mother took her out because she felt she needed to go to a special school. But the girl was in tears and didn't want to leave. And this special girl who was special, you know, her face was deformed. You know, she would see me in the corridors and she'd say, morning, Mr. Smith. You know, she couldn't necessarily remember my name. You know, she walked in a funny way and so on. And yet all the kids were so nice to her. Nobody was mean to her. And I remember when she left, she was here for two years. She was crying, saying how much she'd miss all her friends. You know, and I'm not sure she had any kind of friends' friends because she was very different, but she felt as if she had friends. And that was so, I was so proud of that. You know, I'm so proud of our children. And I always say to people, people talk about our results. And I always say, you know, the thing I'm most proud of is not their academic results, although I'm happy and I'm pleased about that. The thing I'm most proud of is the people who they become through being here. And that is the be kind bit of our motto, which is why it's so sad that Kip have had to give that up because it's the more important than working hard. The kind of person that you're going to be for the rest of your life matters so much more. And you saw that in that video. Her friends were thrilled for her. Yes, I'll make sure to link that video in the show notes because it really is wonderful. And that story you told about that girl with special needs is so touching. It all just circles back. Like this entire conversation has just been a reminder that children become the adults they are through the lessons that they absorb from the adults around them. There's not this natural state where children are either born polite or born mean, That's right. born a bully or born a victim, born smart, born dumb. These are things that they have to be taught and educated about. And that's the adults they become. And it's just, it, you're right, seeing seeing bullying in schools is par for the course here. And it's written off like it's a natural state of being. Yeah. And to hear the stories that you've been telling about Michaela, it's just so instructive. This is not how it has to be. That's right. Children do not have to be mean. They do not have to be disruptive. That is not who children are. It's only who children become when adults abandon them. Yeah. So, you know, I really, uh, sorry, I really appreciate the work you're doing. So well, thank you. Uh, final question, Catherine, uh, to wrap out our chat. I ask this to every guest, and I think it's important. We're limited as individuals in all sorts of ways. We're limited in our time, our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of everyone else, every group of people, all the time. It's just impossible, especially someone as busy as yourself. So is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now, abstract or concrete, that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? Oh, I don't know. There's so many different people out there. I mean, my, my staff are very important to me because I'm always the one that's on these podcasts talking. And I, what I really like about this podcast is the way you kept quoting and naming some of my staff from the book. Because they're in the classrooms day in, day out. They're the ones working all the time. Uh, I mean, I also work all the time, but, you know, they give so much and they're not on podcasts. They're just quietly 
changing the world for these children. And they do it without thanks. And in fact, some of their friends stop talking to them because they're young. And so they're part of this millennial crowd that are all cool and trendy. And they look at Michaela and they think, how can you work there? Some of them actually lose friendships because of their choice to come and work here. And so they make huge sacrifices for the sake of these children. And I have such huge respect for them, really, that they do that and that they give what they do. And I just wish that people would rethink their judgments of those who are actually doing real good, that putting a black box on Instagram doesn't really do any good for anyone. Going and working in the inner city day in, day out, and getting there at 6.37 a.m. every day, that's what makes a difference. Yes. And I would recommend to anyone interested to check out The Power of Culture, because although on its surface, it seems like a collection of essays that talk about Michaela's methodologies, which of course it is. On a deeper level, it is a series of testimonials of adults who have become very involved in these children's lives. And as you said, have gone about actually changing these children's stars. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing for these children. And thank you to your staff for the work that they're doing as well. So it means a lot to me, even though I'm on the other side of the pond, but I really appreciate the work you're doing. Well, it's always great to have fans and to have appreciation because we do get, you know, some hate. So it's very nice when, when it's loved. So thank you very much. <laughs> you're welcome.